If you wish to support this podcast, which is run by a black queer artist, it's not easy for us in this day and age. If you wish to support the Creative Hour podcast, please consider donating on a monthly basis to my Patreon. I will also add this link into the show notes. It is patreon.com forward dash P-R-S-H-A-K-U-R. My Patreon will help you get early access to these episodes. It will help you get early access to newsletters about the writing industry and the writing process and will give you a lot of behind the scenes material that I will definitely be cultivating a lot over the next year for season two of the Creative Hour. Shakur, your host of the Creative Hour podcast, which is broadcast through Verge FM, an online DIY radio station based here in Columbus, Ohio. On this episode of the Creative Hour, we have a very special guest. We have Eli Hiller. Eli Hiller is a Filipino-American documentary filmmaker and photojournalist that is a um, Pulitzer Center grant recipient. His video and photo work spans from North America, uh, from Ohio to the West Coast of the U.S. to Central America to um, a thick stack of work that he did while living in the Philippines for three years. And one of the reasons I wanted to talk to Eli especially is because um, as a person in my life, he basically, to me, kind of represents uh, what a modern kind of POC journalist can be, um, whether that be the different kind of assignments that he's chosen over the years, um, his ethics around travel, um, just his commitment to his work and how he shares space with people. Um, and for me, he's also someone that I view as a person that's also developed politically. Um, and I look to him in a lot of ways as a kind of um, peer, but also a guide. Um, so I wanted to talk to Eli and give uh, other people out there that maybe are interested in documentary filmmaking or photojournalism or travel um, or just interested in how you can make media about social movements and things that are happening in your community. Um, so welcome to the podcast, Eli. How are you doing today? It's great to be here, Prince. Um, this is wild. I've seen you continuously work on this podcast and um, kind of workshop it for the past few months and to see it all come together has just been great. Um, I've been watching and listening to your past podcast and really excited to be here. So thank you for letting me on here. <laughs> thank you. Um, so I kind of, there's two ways I kind of want to start. Um, so, I mean, some of the things to, that I kind of want to get into with you is like, what was it like growing up in Southeast Ohio, um, growing up with a single mother, a lot of your, the travels that I know that you did when you were younger, um, and then kind of getting into uh, studying photojournalism, studying journalism, and how your career and kind of perspective on journalism and media has changed uh, since you've graduated, have traveled. Um, so that's just to give you an idea, just a light conversation. Yeah, just my whole life story <laughs> in a, a matter of five minutes. No, I mean, that's about to be an hour. Get ready. Um, so, yeah, first, uh, I kind of like to start um, with when people are young. So what was young Eli? What was little Eli like? Um, and And how did that boy develop into someone that 
loves photography, loves video, um, that loves a lot of the things that you do? Yeah, I think growing up, um, you know, I grew up in Southeast Ohio in Athens. I grew up in town. Um, and for me, there was a lot of traveling in my life. My, um, my mother would bring me to Central America every winter for three or four months, mostly to, I mean, she was a snowboard, a snowbird. She would escape winter all the time and she would bring me a phrase for it. Yeah. Yeah. There's a, there's a bit of a phrase for it. Um, but she would pretty much bring me like with like on the travels and I would be homeschooled when I was living there. Um, she introduced me to a lot of, uh, different countries, different cultures. And as a kid, I was like constantly traveling and there were certainly a lot of pros to that. There was definitely some cons too. just Mm. growing up. It was difficult to maintain certain types of friendships or get more involved in extracurriculars, sports, Mm -hmm. um, relationships. (laughs) Mm. But, um, I'm very much grateful for a lot of the experiences I had as a young kid, um, to have the ability to really um, just meet um, lots of kids that are just living um, totally different lives than you are and find some way to immediately create and build this relationship with them Mm. has been, I think I've taken that and put it in all of the context of my life in my professional and personal life. So that has, that, that was certainly something that I've been grateful for. Yeah. And I guess one thing that I think of as you were I don't know. I I think of like class difference and how you did grow up in Southeast Ohio. You grew up in a region that is it's one of the poorest counties Mm -hmm. in Ohio, Um, because I I think there is a difference in how you traveled growing up, which was traveling with your mother, like living in different places, learning languages, um, sometimes going to school there um, and how that's different than maybe the average person going to college who has a lot more money in their family and traveled for like family vacations. So I guess, was there ever a period of time as you got older where you realized the way that you traveled growing up gave you a certain kind of perspective on travel or class and how that affects travel and tourism? Yeah, certainly. I think um, I was lucky that my mother, I mean, my mother was never, she's never been rich. She probably has never made over 25000 a year um, as a carpenter and like a landlord in Athens. But she was incredibly frugal and she just we just didn't spend money on things that most families spend money on. Christmas. Uh, we don't really do gifts. Um, my mother like we did. I did thrift stores for most of my life. OK. Um, um, the only really like major toys I had was like I had a Game Boy and that was like <laughs> that would just entertain me for hours and some video games but in general we didn't have I mean I'd never thought we were poor mm-hmm. and I don't think we ever w- were but we were very much like a kind of like like kind of lower class generally and it didn't really strike me I feel like until I moved to California mm-hmm. what wealth really was um but kind of getting back to the aspect of travel. So yeah. we didn't have wealth, but we had time. We had the flexibility to leave for three or four months and really kind of invest and develop like our our ability to learn different cultures and go mm-hmm. abroad. And yeah, I think once I've once like I, that 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 felt the, like that was the norm for me. Mm-hmm. And to be honest 
just traveling with other people has made me realize, oh, this is not how people like most people travel because, you know, they only have they only have a few weeks um, to really take a vacation. They want to fit everything in in that tiny, tiny take as many photos as they can. (laughs) Right. Right. And I think you cannot divulge like a whole culture, a whole people in such a small period of time. Mm-hmm. If you really want to get a culture and get a sense of what it's like living in a place, you have to be there for three, six months. Yeah. Right. So, something around there. And, and were those the kind of trips that you were doing when you were younger? Like, trips yeah, that, were that long? so we would do like, I guess this is pretty, it's like slow travel. Yeah. Like what we did is there was this uh, from the age of seven to 13, we would frequently go to this town um, in Belize. Um, it's uh, Key Cocker, Amargus Key. Mm-hmm. Um, it's pretty much this, it's this pretty, it's a pretty popular tourist destination for a lot of Americans. It kind of has, it has very strong Caribbean vibes. Um, there's a very strong Afrocentric mm-hmm. culture there. Um, they speak this Belizean Creole that I kind of picked up when I was there, when I was a kid, a, a little bit. And there would be like three months where I was just barefoot. Running like running on the beaches, not wearing a shirt. Perfect. Yeah, good fish. They had the freshest fish ever. They had like the best lobster and grouper that I have ever had, and like that was a lot of my life. I was like this Appalachian kid growing up in Southeast Ohio during the summers, and then I was this island boy during the winters. Yeah, and it was this kind of weird um, multicultural identity that I had for a while. And that I just kind of became a bit of a social chameleon mm-hmm. in any setting that I was at. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And that also, I think a lot of that very much ties into being a Filipino American as well. Like it's a very, the Filipino identity is very ambiguous. Right. Mm. So it, it's one of those where I feel like both in my, my character and even how I look, yeah. I can just generally blend in with like a lot of things and it's not a problem. I mean, that's, you know, traveling Latin America, most people would assume I was Latino. And I very much felt very strongly with that identity. Didn't you say there was someone recently that said that they thought you were Moroccan? No. What? Moroccan? No, I have a friend who's Moroccan, though. No. Who? What? I thought it was, maybe it was somebody else. (laughs) But yeah, there's, I mean, and there's... Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's been people that have said like, oh, I thought you were Arabic or something. That definitely happens, but there's been many situations where like I have felt Latino and I even joined the like the National Hispanic Journalists Association because mm-hmm. I, I was living in Latin America for a portion yeah. of my life and I very much still identify with that like that like for with the Latino people and Latino culture and the narrative yeah and certainly as like a Filipino American like you know Spain colonized mm-hmm. um, the Philippines so the United States so there's a lot of I think things that we intrinsically like are very similar in many ways. Yeah. So, okay. but, but more so that I had traveled there in my youth. But yeah, I, I kind of want to pivot more into, since this is a podcast about like creative moments that have like shaped us. Um, I mean, can you, can you talk a little bit about how you got into photography, mm-hmm. what attracted you to it and what it was like um, studying photojournalism? Um, Cause you went to Ohio university. That's where we met. Sure. Um, I mean, I originally got into photo, into photography in general when, you know, I took a, a road trip with 
my best friend and his family um, to Yellowstone National Park. And, you know, we drove from Ohio to Yellowstone and, you know, it was a trip that probably took like a week. And my mother had lent me her digital Canon like point and shoot. And I just remember really just documenting the whole trip. And I just kind of, I loved just photographing every little moment like along the trip and just kind of following that narrative. And that was just, it, it wasn't like a, oh, these photos are great. It was mm-hmm. like, I love, I love the process of it. What, what parts of the process did you like? Combining adventure with something that gave meaning and purpose to it. Mm. Like, it's like, I'm finding this, I'm exploring this per se. Yeah. And I still very much like that aspect of photography where I'm just, I'm finding like, I'm going on this path or this light and just like finding something and finding something more in myself about it. Mm-hmm. And just like documenting people around me. I just found it really fun yeah. <laughs> and really invigorating. And and so you photographed a lot there. And then what was, what went into your decision to decide to study it? Um, was that a scary decision? Was it an easy decision? Yeah. I mean, after that trip, when I got back into Athens, um, I was like, like my best friend's father had mentioned, told me like, oh, like you have really good eye, you have good composition, like you should maybe explore this mm-hmm. more. And I was like, yeah, I enjoy it. It's fun. I should. And there was like a local photographer who he did a lot of art photography on plants. And he like gave me this camera. It gave me another camera. It was like a Nikon D70. And it's like super old. It was the slowest camera I have ever owned in my life. Nikon D70. Yeah, exactly. That's it. (laughs) But it was like, it was probably 15 years old at that point. Yeah. And it was just like an old camera he had and gave it to me. But with that, like it opened so many doors to just photographing all the time. And I had, I was lucky enough to realize that there was a great like photography um, program at OU. Mm-hmm. And I kind of knew it was already going to be going to OU just for like financial purposes. Yeah. And I was like, let me look more into this school. And then I reached out to them when I was, a, I think, a, maybe like a sophomore. Mm-hmm. And they're like, like maybe late sophomore year or like early junior year. They're like, oh, oh. and I was taking classes at OU because I was uh, in the post, I was in the post secondary okay. program. So like sophomore yeah, yeah. year. <laughs> I was it. Yeah. Wow. You're also a year younger than everyone else. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) But um, so I was taking college classes my junior and senior year just because I wanted to start getting credits out of the way. And I took Mm -hmm. the ACT and barely passed like (laughs) like a 22. Oh, me too. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Like it wasn't that good, but I I had a good GPA. Okay. So like. What was your GPA? In in high school? Yeah. It's like a (gasps) 3.9 or 4. Like I was. Oh my God. But it was like, yeah, it wasn't that hard. God. But like, but because of my GPA, I was able to take college classes. Yeah, yeah. And honestly, those classes were easier than high school the, that first year. Okay. But I was like, oh, maybe I can take class like photo classes. And they're like, oh no, you can't do that until you actually finish high school. Mm, okay. <laughs> but like, keep on photographing, you know, more people. Like, I showed them my portfolio, which at the time was probably like birds, insects, like maybe a few friends, some that, landscapes. Wasn't there that bloody photo? I, I remember when I first met you, there was a bloody photo of Tanner on your Facebook. Oh, that, no, that was like, I was, I was already in the program oh, at that point. Okay, yeah, that okay. was like, a, <laughs> that was like a portrait session. Oh, okay, okay. <laughs> that was fun though. I like that. 
<laughs> I was getting real creative with that one. Yeah, but cool. um, that was, I was still, uh, that was my freshman year of okay. OU. But before that, I really wasn't photographing many people. I was like, okay, I guess I got to start photographing more people now. And I kind of started doing that and then applied to the program. And I think I, I, it was announced that I got in, I think it was like the, maybe the second semester of my senior year. Mm-hmm. And that was, I was in Costa Rica actually when I had gotten ex- accepted mm-hmm. and I had done my interview with them, I think as well, when I was in, in Costa Rica, maybe like a few months before. Okay. And wow. it, the internet there was awful. So it was like people were going in and out. Of the the chat. Cafe? Yeah, yeah. Oh. I was at an internet cafe and it was like cutting in and out. And I was like, I hope they can hear me. I can't yeah, like, hear oh, them. We don't want you to come. Right, to exactly. <laughs> and then I think it was uh, on Valentine's Day, 2012. Like I had gotten accepted. Okay. And I was like, yeah, I was stoked. It was, it was amazing. And what was what was your experience uh, studying um, at OU? I mean, I know that you were a double major, photojournalism mm-hmm. and geography. But I guess I'm more curious about uh, the photojournalism aspect. What was it like? Um, studying that at Ohio University because um, it's a, I mean, it's a world. Is it a world-renowned program or nationally? nationally okay. Yeah, yeah. Okay. <laughs> I think it was super lucky that I happened to be living in the same town where they have like one of the te- like top photojournalism schools in the country. Um, but I think there's so many people that go into the program not really knowing what they want to do. And that's totally fair. Like the age of 18 or 19, how can you really know? Like, oh, yeah, I want to be a photojournalist for the rest of my life. Mm-hmm. Right. So there's certainly a lot of people in the program at first that are like, what is this? Like, do I like this? Yeah. And and but what is really nice about having a four year program program like that is like you can really dig deeper into your pro- process. And I think that's why. I would prefer the undergraduate program over like the master's because mm. the master's is like you're it's like within two years, you're taking this whole program and like just like putting just it all in it. one thing. Okay. And it's just like so much because a lot of the professors just had so much knowledge that they're putting in there, whether it's photo story or editorial or news or video and audio. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's very hands on. Okay. What I love about the program is like it's one of the most hands on, I think. Photojournalism was the most hand-on program that there is. And and for OU, do you think, I, I guess I'm wondering why that is. And, and, and one thing that comes to mind is like the Post being a daily newspaper. But why do you think Scripps is more of a hands-on program? Like, why do you think they take that approach? So, yeah, we're in the we're in a separate school, the School of Visual Communication. Okay. But it's still within the College of Scripps. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, but why is it so hands-on? It's hands-on because... It comes to a lot of the background, a lot of the professors that are there. They don't want you just to learn theory. They have you out photographing every week Mm -hmm. and like finding stories, creating stories that are really, really unique, you know, and are like kind of telling of what you're interested in. So it's a lot of busy work. I mean, Mm -hmm. it's a lot of like you're out in the field all the time trying to find something as opposed to be like, oh, this is like. A really great photographer let's learn about the theory mm. and concept behind that and there's okay. something to be said about that for sure but like if you want to get the ball rolling and really develop your aesthetic and your style and like a portfolio 
they want you shooting like all the time. Mm-hmm. So how did you find work sure. as a photojournalist while being a student? Yeah, that's a hard thing to balance. But uh, I think the nice thing about that is if you can overlap with a lot of the work mm-hmm. that you were like the people that you're shooting for with your like project, that's nice. But I fortunately didn't do that. But yeah. I, how did I find work? So first year I was in the, I was kind of in the post and I was doing that, but it really wasn't much of like being paid. Then yeah. my sophomore year, the Athens news. Yeah. Sophomore year, I started doing more things for the Athens news. I worked for the EW script school of journalism. I photographed for Athena cinema. Um, oh, I, I worked, I photographed for the Voinovich school for a little bit. Um, I've gotten a lot of gigs from like university things and it helped the biggest self-promotion. It was probably photographing for the Athens news. Okay. Um, because that really like showed people that like, okay, I can, I'm like a semi-professional and I can handle this work. I can handle other things. Mm-hmm. Um, I had, a, I've had a long standing relationship with the EW script school of journalism, got to know the director really well because I photographed the high school journalism workshop. I think this is mm-hmm. back in okay. 2014 because okay. I had a journalism professor and they're like, hey, we need a photographer. Like, are you available this summer? I was like, yes, please. <laughs> was was the pay well? No, not at all. But it helped me open doors to everything else. Yeah. Right. And I think that's the biggest thing is it, once you're in a program, don't take into consideration money too much because it's like, yeah, work is good. But if you really want to build a career, you have to just start photographing all the time when you're in university because it's like you rather want to do that in, in university as opposed to doing it like once you're out of it. Yeah. Because you're building up this portfolio. You're building up clients and trust and relationships. Yeah. And, and I'm so glad you said that because that's one. And that's the reason I wanted to rephrase the question because I don't know. I, I feel like I knew you then as like someone working as a photojournalist even if it was like as a student for money and i feel like i wished i could look back at that and ask you more questions <laughs> knowing that i would eventually get into freelance work and so i guess i just wanted to ask that because i do, i do feel like there's a gap between how at least in how i was taught writing in school and then how i earned money as a writer once i graduated um, and I, and I guess I just wonder, is there, was there that gap for you and what you felt like you were taught versus what you felt like you actually had to do as a working journalist once you graduated? Was there any dissonance for you in terms of that? I mean, there certainly was, and there even is now, but yeah. I think it was one of those things that the program at OU and Viscom, it prepares you to, you know, get internships, get fellowships, get a staff job, hold on to that as long as you can. But the reality of journalism is that that is no longer, that's that's like, that is no longer going to exist in the future. Mm. Not all staff positions are going to be available to everyone. Yeah. Right. So, I mean, that's why I took the freelance route. Um, has it been perfect? No, <laughs> but uh, I've had to learn so many other things about it. And I feel like I'm still, I'm learning every day. And, the, but the past year has really been, revolutionary coming back here and being part of a photo community again. And and that's really helped me so much. Um, But uh, when I was researching you on Google, 
I, I research Eli every once in a while because he's a really good friend of mine. So if anyone's out there, YouTube Eli Hitler and you'll find his acting reel. Oh, no. <laughs> I would actually, I, I won't put this in the episode. It's okay um, if you did. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay, cool. Got your permission. Is like being a person of color and a journalist and like a young journalist today. Um, and I was researching you and I found that you were interviewed for an article that came out. Uh, it was either this year or last year, I believe. And it's titled um, Ohio's Whitest Newspaper. Oh, no. <laughs> um, so um, just through just through knowing a little bit of your history, uh, you graduated from Ohio University in 2016. Um, you said I was taken aback. Um, and this is in reference to an experience with uh, a microaggression that you had while working at a particular um, newspaper. And you said, I was taken aback. This was my first experience in the, f- in the field of professional journalism. My first big opportunity, the first thing I heard uh, was, oh, you're brown. I wanted to challenge the narrative of whiteness that Columbus and even its name represents. I thought, I'm probably not going to be doing the stories I want to do. That was a concern from the get-go. I don't know. I, I think it's really important for journalists or people of color who work in media to be able to be really transparent about these experiences. And I'm sure that happened. And from my understanding, you didn't speak up about it right away and you needed time to process. Um, What would you go back and tell um, that 2016 Eli um, slash what advice would you give to journalists of color who are entering the field now? And that's a hard one because it's like, I don't know. Even now, I don't know what I would tell my my 2016, 2015 self when I was interning at the dispatch. Like, it's probably going to be fine. Just like, keep on doing what you're doing, generally. I would say things have majorly changed so much in the past year. At least people are trying to change their image about how they represent themselves in the journalism field. Um, Do you mean individual journalists or newspapers? More so institutions and newspapers. Like there's this very much, there's huge push right now towards um, creating diverse voices that are telling a variety of stories. Um, It's so interesting to see that because like, like this is what I wanted like five years ago. And now it's just like, oh, okay. It's going to take the death of like, like the the brutal lynching of someone to make this like yeah, happen, yeah. right? It's unfortunate that that's happening. I'm glad it's happening. I just wish it happened for more holistic reasons, right? Um, I don't think it's the end all be all. Just because, sure, you can you can hire um, you can start hiring and uh, hiring like journalists of color, photojournalists of color, and like editors, but. You really, it's more of the power structure mm-hmm. and economic. Who's investing? Right. Who is making the decisions in terms of like, I don't know, like what kind of coverage uh, that particular publication wants to do? Certainly there's that. It, it's for me, I see it more of the, for me, there's more of a historical element and like socioeconomic. It's more like people of color, they don't see journalism as a career to put their money into. As in you have first generation first you have first generation immigrant families. What are they telling their children? I'm a doctor, lawyer, or work in STEM. <laughs> right, exactly. And that's all fine and good, but they're not telling people to pursue creative fields. And even if you are interested, mm-hmm. you're incredibly dissuaded by your family. Yeah. Like is what I've heard from a lot of journalists of color. Mm-hmm. I think I was almost lucky that. I'm a Filipino American. My mother's white. 
She never even thought about it. She's like, do what you want. Yeah. Right. But it's also that's one aspect of it. Certainly you have family. Then you have just in general, like um, the amount of money it takes to put in a career where you have to buy thousands of dollars of equipment. It's not easy. Yeah. Um, So there's that as well. And it's like also then it comes a representation. How many people of color see other people of color that are in that field and position? Mm -hmm. Like you can't see yourself in that. How can you ever achieve that? Yeah. And I guess it's interesting to think about because I'm thinking of, uh, I guess when I was graduating, I didn't really have an idea of what it was like to be a black writer. I think I was learning, but it is interesting for me to think about it in terms of my senior year was when I was working for the Athens News. And I think I'd written my first kind of, I, it was my first piece of like journalism. I, I don't even know if it was, it was for an Athens news catalog. I interviewed like a local business owner, but it was my first time writing and getting paid. And if I'm looking back, the only journalist I had an idea of who was black was um Wesley Lowry. What, what would it look like for people of color to grow up and to, to see art or being in journalism or um, to see that as a viable industry? Like, what do you think would, have to change. I mean, it's a big question, but I guess I think about it a lot. And I was being interviewed a few days ago, and it's something that I talked about a lot. But I, I wonder what that looks like for you, especially like we're going to talk about it more later. But uh, like you lived for three years in the Philippines, like I'm sure that gave you like an even deeper kind of perspective. But what would that look like in your, in your mind? Um, I mean, in short, it's like the industry as a whole has to change. Mm-hmm. There has to be an economic model that can support diversity. And right now with like, I think the United States as a whole and capitalism is just not working. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I think there has to be a whole shift in how, like what the economics of journalism is for the United States. I'm not sh- exactly sure what that looks like. Mm-hmm. It could be looking at Nordic states in Northern Europe and looking at how they are like funding journalism and seeing it as like a social good. It could Mm -hmm. be that that could be like definitely a step in the right direction. Um, Or does it mean like some form of state media where people are certified journalists um, and that carries some weight and and, like heaviness Mm -hmm. and like that would could certainly like bring in more diverse voices. If you have an economic model that can really support people like in a career like that, if we're talking like full-time jobs, right? Yeah, yeah. Because right now it's like people, they'll, they're, they're definitely more willing to go towards a freelancer route because they can, they can do the work they love and then do corporate and client work to support that. Right. Mm-hmm. And somehow find a balance. Um, I think that's what it is for me right now, but I totally realize that People aren't as crazy as me <laughs> yeah. to like do spend all that energy in both of those like fields and really diversify yeah. your income. It's not easy by any means. So um, really, you just have to make it easier economically for journalists before we can get this full diversity. I think right now there's a lot of efforts that are happening, though, of course. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's a, there's a lot of institutions that are prioritizing people of color for a lot of fellowships and internships and grants. There's more grant programs that are coming out. And those are all certainly well and good. Um, but they're a neoliberal response to a system that is oppressing people of color. Totally. It, it, it's not, yeah, it's not like a, it's not a long-term solution in yeah. my opinion. 
Like, I, like, but am I taking advantage of it as much as I can? Yes. No, but, the, but the, <laughs> I don't even think it's taking advantage of it. Because I'm like, you should be getting even more roses out here. <laughs> I mean, I think it's just like one of those things that's like just coming back like to the United States after being gone for so long and being like, oh, like you're a person of color. Tell these stories. And I'm like, okay. <laughs> like, how, I mean, yes. Like, wow. Now you care. Wow. <laughs> so to see these things like really shifting. And mm. it's just like maybe I've been like a cynic for so many years and now people are just realizing just recently what it what it means. Yeah. I just fear that whatever changes they're making now, it 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 and maybe this is just because this happened yesterday or the day before. I can't remember if I was with you. Maybe it was yesterday, but I, I was walking somewhere and I saw a tree in someone's yard. And you know how after all the protests last summer, people would put their BLM signs in their yard. And this person had a BLM sign, but it was permanent marker that they'd written the words Black Lives Matter on a piece of paper and they taped it to a tree. And I'm like, is this the presentation, though? I don't know. I don't know why I'm relating you (laughs) talking about uh, what I consider lackluster kind of diversity efforts to Black Lives Matter being taped to a tree. But um, no, I I mean, (laughs) I think it's what you're talking about is this form of performativeness that is happening in all 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 industries. But especially so in journalism, because we're we're an industry we're an industry that is telling the narratives of mm-hmm. who we're talking about, like vulnerable communities. Yeah. Who are those people? Marginalized communities, people of color. So it's like it, it it wants to the journalism as a whole wants to like be like, hey, we care, like we care, even if the whole socioeconomic history of it is obviously like, no, mm-hmm. we haven't. Yeah. So. Mm. Well, on that note, we're going to take a little break. And when we get back to the creative hour, we'll be talking to Eli about living in the Philippines and um, generally what it's like to be a subversive filmmaker and journalist. Be right back. Hello, this is Prince, and I'm the host of the Creative Hour podcast, but I'm also the person kind of chiming in, answering the question of what do I respect about Eli and his work ethic? Um, Almost an impossible question to answer because I, when I met Eli, I think I recognized in him the thing that I always want when I meet new people, which is this person is going to change my life. Um, he eats healthy. He is just a really hard worker for the things that he cares about on a level that sometimes I'm like, you can calm down, you can chill out. (laughs) But seeing that work ethic and being able to be a part of it through like the video work that we've done together, or just talking about our careers, I think him taking himself and his work so seriously has compelled me to do the same for my work. And it's, and him challenging me has helped me get into video work. It's helped me travel, go to other places. Um, And I think knowing someone that lives in a way that I want to, and we can reflect each other and be friends and also challenge each other. I don't know. It's one of the few relationships in my life where I know 
Like we're good. <laughs> and uh, yeah, yeah. And, and he, he speaks different languages. He travels. He, I don't know. I, and, and I think the biggest thing for me that I admire and I kind of want more in myself that I see in him is that I think he just has a kind of internal compass that a lot of people in their 20s who are starting out their life just don't have. Um, and I think he shoots off into the world and he figures things out. And that is something that a lot of people don't do. Um, so love you, bud. Love you, Eli. And let's get back into this episode. All right, we are back with Eli Hiller, and let's get back into this conversation. Um, Before we end it off, you said you wanted to talk a little bit more about your time interning at the Columbus Dispatch. So, uh, yeah, what was was that experience like? Um, I know we shared a little bit about that experience on your first day, but, uh, yeah, what was the rest of it like? I think in general, um, there were a lot of things that happened that summer, and in general, it was a really great internship. I learned so much about um, like really meeting deadlines, uh, shooting a variety of photos, um, doing sports, which is still not my strong suit. But I, I use that to take away like everything from like photographing a lot of breaking news and really fast paced like environments um, and also what it means to work with a writer and what it means to work with a staff. So there's a lot that I learned from that. And very much grateful for that opportunity. Though, with that said, I can't lie that the journalism environment there is, it's just very, um, there's just very, very few um, journalists of color that were in that newsroom. And um, I never really thought it being an issue until it was an issue. Like, until like that first day and I looked around and I'm like, oh, I am the only brown person like in this room. And for them, it wasn't like at that time, it wasn't really a priority. And I think remember seeing in that article that was I was also interviewed um, for was they were talking about how like, oh, we have like diverse people in and in our internships. But it's like that doesn't really matter as interns. We can only do so many things in three or four months. So why does that What's the point if you're not hiring people on staff? And the other argument could be that, like, you're in Ohio and there's just not many, like, diverse um, journalists that are in the region. But it's also like, what is the outreach that you're doing to, like, institutions like uh, the National Association of Hispanic Journalists or Asian American Journalists Association? or the National Association of Black Journalists. Like there's yeah. so many things that they could, they could take the time away and do that. Um, there's also the argument that like we, it's a, like our, the budget in dispatch since they got bought out has just been slowly been shrinking, right? And that there's not enough money to really hire like mm. diverse journalists. Yeah. And they're not totally wrong, but it's also like you have to make, start making steps in the right direction. Yeah. And I think they're they're slowly getting there, but like it's something that's they're gonna have to build trust with a lot of those like communities of colors over many, many years. Yeah. So and and I think what you're saying makes me think of uh I don't know, I, I think in terms of like sacrifice, I think these institutions will have to sacrifice things that they see as like necessary now in order to have a different outcome. Because in my mind, it's like if 
if these institutions are sacrificing in order to get a larger profit, um, those sacrifices usually involve like vulnerable communities, like kind of like what you were speaking to earlier. I don't know. It, it, it really just it really just takes me back to what you were saying earlier. Like we have to change the whole economic model because it's not economically viable, <laughs> at least in their mind, to hire more people of color, to change their practices, to to I don't know, to operate the office space or the newsroom in a more um, conscious way, I guess. Um, uh, yeah. Media. Yeah, totally. And, and I think this is the thing where um, you'll see, like, you go to a lot of these um, protests and what are the activists saying? Like, the media is not paying attention. The media is not paying attention. Um, they're, and they're not entirely wrong for these reasons, where you have institutions that have frequently stereotyped, like, these communities for decades. And they're not looking for... Um, like institutional racism that's been obviously that's been there. Right. Yeah. And they haven't put a lot of those resources into that until very recently. Um, and so you worked, uh, you interned for the dispatch in the summer of 2016, 2015. Oh, 2015. Then I interned for the Sacramento Bee the next summer okay. out in California. Okay. So, um, yeah, I, I guess I kind of want to shift into like, yeah, what, uh, working, as a filmmaker, as a photojournalist was like after college. And I guess particularly through the lens of everything that was changing politically. Um, and so I don't know, like, I, I guess I just remember like when the 2016 election happened, I remember you talking about, uh, photographing in Oakland. Yeah. And, and, and so I guess I'm just curious, like, what did that period of time, um, represent for you as like someone who was early career. Um, and then uh, I, I guess I'm curious, like how that space and time fed into you um, going to the Philippines and deciding to live there. Of course, when Donald Trump won the presidency in 2016, the whole world was pretty much shocked. Um, I was not alone in that. <laughs> um, though where, where, where were you when though, you found out? So I was out in Sacramento at like a bar, mm -hmm. like playing pool with a few people and just some strangers because I didn't have any friends in the mm -hmm. town. And I remember being out and I remember there was some there was some guys that were like they were like Mexican, Mexican Americans. And they were talking about how like what this means for their family and all these things. And they're like, how could the rest of America like be like this? I was like, let me tell you, <laughs> I'm from those. I'm from that part of the United States. Oh yeah, and yeah. Like, I mean, I was surprised, but I wasn't that surprised. Yeah. Like I was shocked that he had won, but I'm like, okay, that makes sense. Like, like you, then I'm like, did, did he like, did Ohio vote for Trump at the time? Yes. And very much was essential for winning um, the, the election. So it was like one of those things where I'm like, how, like the American perspective is in the, it's like the regional divide between so many things is so vast mm -hmm. where Californians have no idea what people in the Midwest are going yeah. through. Right. Um, Especially people in rural areas, right. areas that aren't as densely populated. And it, it's really easy for people. And I think in, especially in larger cities like San Francisco and LA to kind of subjugate Midwest to racism. 
Yeah, you remember when we went on that road trip and we met up with those people yes. from Tinder and uh-huh. what did they say to us? They were all people of color and they said, Ohio, isn't that where the racist people live? And I'm like, we're all people of color. Exactly. <laughs> so it's one of those things it's like, you're not wrong, but it's like, if, if you just like put us all in this tiny bubble and assume that we're like this, like we're not having a more complicated situ- like conversation about um, like like all the different identities, mm-hmm. regional identities that exist across this vast country, right? And I mean, that's, I think that's how United States has been for so long. It's how it was in 2020 and during that election. It's like, we're all just playing to this like working middle class or we're playing identity politics, yeah, right? And I think that's something the United States as a whole needs to get over at some point. Right. How do we bridge those barriers past that? Um, how do we and like how do we integrate people from the working class and the white class? Do you think that's possible in the United States of America to do? I don't think I th- I think it's very going to be very, very, very difficult. But I think it's essential if we're going to see success in this country or it's going to falter. That's what that, exactly because I'm like, I don't think it's possible to do in the United States, um, within it, but if we didn't have the U.S. anymore, because <laughs> I because I, right. I, I don't know because I guess when you say that, I'm like to me it just seems incompatible with the the project of what America is or the, the U.S. It, it could be potentially that we see maybe not total separate states, but um, almost like. I'm just kind of relating back to my perspective in the Philippines. You see it like uh, the southern part of the Philippines called Mindanao will eventually govern itself at some mm-hmm. point because um, it's more predominantly has more predominantly Muslim population. It's just so culturally different than the rest of the country. Mm-hmm. And we might see something like that. Where we have more um, more independent authoritative like bodies within mm-hmm. different regions that create things for themselves. Almost like alliances amongst different states, mm. maybe something like that. I, am I, I am I in the wrong ballpark because I'm thinking about how DC wanted statehood? Is that kind of that's a little different? That's like DC becoming a state. It's more like you saw you see all of East Coast kind of become its own cultural identity, or more no, about- more like becoming like the European Union or something uh, like that. Okay. Like you, it's like like they have all. Um, kind of accumulated and made like separate like tax. Um, what's the, it'd be like tax brackets, tax brackets, but more like import export taxes just for the East Coast or th- something uh, something like that, where their economy is almost kind of separate from the rest. Mm-hmm. Um, this is just like a really vague theory, like theory about what could potentially happen. It's such a massive country; it's hard to. Um, disseminate like one specific narrative to it Mm -hmm. right and yeah i think that's that's certainly i mean that's its strength and that's also its weakness yeah what were we talking about we were talking about (laughs) (laughs) you're talking about what it's like to be a working journalist outside of college oh yeah so yeah i'm talking about the 2016 presidential. yeah so how did how did 2016 in the presidential election impact uh, kind of kind of your perspective moving forward um, because the election happened and then you went to the Philippines in November of 2017 16 um and so what what was your headspace um and yeah just I mean what was what was going to the Philippines like and kind of experiencing those kind of 
first moments of what would be the next three years of your life? Yeah, I think 2016, when Trump won, it was like internationally, there was this, I mean, this growing authoritarian figures in many democratic countries, Brazil, the Philippines, the UK, Mm -hmm. I think Germany at the time, and maybe a few others. When did Modi get into power in India? Um, yeah, he's probably in that same like kind of time, that time, same time frame. Um, but kind of, kind of knew going to the Philippines it was going to be something like that. Um, because I had read about Duterte, I had seen a lot of the um, the EJKs or the extrajudicial killings that were put on by the police um, had like started, and that like you know, I think that ended up in a huge New York times article. And I was like, I'm going to this country. Mm. And like I had, but I had been like planning on going for like six months. And then I was like, wow, I'm going there. And this mm. is what I'm going to like, like I have no idea what to expect. Really. I think I remember reading that article and I remember thinking, Oh my God, I'm black and I'm going to another war on drugs. <laughs> right. <laughs> but, um, you know, like, you want to talk about a little bit, like what was it like being in the Philippines, or more like what, yeah, what part of I, it? I guess my my the latter part of my question was like, what are the moments that stick out to you about those beginning months, like that first like half a half a year to a year, mm-hmm. like what sticks out to you now, now that you're not there anymore, now that those three years are done. I entered Philippines at a very strange time, where. Politics were just shifting wildly. Um, there were human rights um, abuses having happening left and right. I was I was like my politics and my understanding and history of the Philippines. It was just just like it all happened with this time span of like six months. It was like a crash course of like Philippine history, where I got there. I was like I you know I traveled for a little bit, traveled with you. And then we continually met activists that were going out there, um, like talking about housing issues, land reform, socioeconomic um, things, and like the war on drugs, right? And I think it's really easy as an American to look at that country and be like, this is the one thing that's happening. But once you're there, you can see the tie to everything else because of the colonial history Mm -hmm. of the country and how... It's all happened. How poverty has like has pretty much been like un- in- inescapable for a majority of the population, mm-hmm. and how that has really like affected everything else in the country. So going there, I remember in the first like some major events that happened. I remember I think it was in May. I had I had been volunteering for like this um, kind of alternative media org there. And like, I remember hearing on radio, like the president Duterte had declared martial law in the state of Mindanao Mm. Um, and all in the whole state of Mindanao, not just Marawi, which was the city that was under siege by a lot of the the Islamic extremists of the the Maute clan, from what I remember. And that was just I still like I remember we were in their office. The radio was on and it was just like dead silence. When the um, president Duterte like made that declaration, mm. and that was like, wow, this is like, this is like the 1980s. Yeah, it, 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 and that's like harkening back to the Ferdinand Marcos era, where martial law was also declared. So I'm like, 
here I am. Like mm. I've only been in this country for five or six wow. months. And it's just like, this is, this feels like the beginning of something like that is going to be historical. And then a few weeks later, they're like, Hey, we're doing a trip. Do you want to go? And I ended as like someone who only been in the country for seven months who didn't even know the language. I was mm. like, yes, how can I not go? Yeah. And then I remember going through numerous army checkpoints, maybe three or four to get to the outskirts um, in Ligan, where there was like hundreds of thousands of refugees or IDPs, internally displaced people that were in all these camps scattered around a lot of the rural areas of the mm-hmm. city. Um, and it was kind of through that trip, I found my people and mm-hmm. kind of like where, where the direction of my career was headed. Um, I, remember, I remember meeting several like activists, artists that were there that had started a group of artists that were speaking out against the war on drugs. Mm -hmm. And they had like some family roots that were in that area. Um, And kind of through that found a lot of my closest friends. What did it change in you to live in the Philippines, to to learn how to speak Filipino, Tagalog, um, to work there? Um, I guess I relate to what you're saying in terms of like how I view Jamaica and how... Growing up, I always only had like my familial kind of connection there. And then as I got older and especially in college, like seeing white people with dreadlocks and listening to Bob Marley, like there's that side of it. But then there's the side of Jamaica that I know people see as like ultra violent and there's only one image of it. I know what my relationship to Jamaica is. If you could describe it, what is, what is your relationship to the Philippines? I think my relationship with the Philippines is um, it was this time in space where I was able to kind of step out of my comfort comfort zone as a as a like an artist. Mm-hmm. I mean, previously, I would never even express myself as being an artist mm-hmm. um, just because as a photojournalist, we I think that was the one thing at OU. It's like you're a photojournalist, like you're not it's not you're not really creating art. You're like visually communicating something. Mm-hmm. And I was like, yeah, 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 that's it. And then, like, when I got out there, I was like, oh, there's so much more to what this is. And I think really seeing, like, the experimental side in Manila and getting in those spaces where art can be whatever you want. Mm-hmm. And that that blew my mind. And, like, that that very much had an impact on my aesthetic and where I kind of see like my kind of career going and I can, I'm more willing to dabble into things that I previously would never have done. Mm-hmm. So I think that was that experimental art scene and like a lot of just like, just surrounding myself with people that were exploring that. Even if I come from this very like maybe a conservative photojournalist background mm-hmm. about like, this is how my vision was. And I was like, okay, maybe it's not. Maybe maybe I've undermined, I've like kind of discounted what art was when I was here in the United States. And then being in a place where the art scene was so strong, mm. I was like, you know what? This is really cool. Yeah. Like I want to do something. I want to be a part of this community. Yeah. So there is that. That's one aspect of that. Yeah. For sure. The second is certainly like <clears throat> my own personal politics shifted so much. And that it was like, it's, I think it's one thing. If you are like studying theory of like socialism and things of that nature and 
have like academic conversations. It's another to see like, like millions of people be impacted by the evils of like neoliberalism and capitalism, like in your everyday life, mm-hmm. you're in like terrible, just traffic all the time. You see the amount of homelessness everywhere and you just see how people are just trying to survive, right? How forgotten people are in a lot of ways too. And to see Philippines is the weirdest place. I've never been to a country that has such, such an economic disparity. Like I would be, I would hang out with like, you know, kids that grew up rich, like that their families had millions of dollars, own some of the most like, well-known companies in the country and then the next day i'm at some like rally with like children that own nothing Mm. and they've been living in this shack for their whole life so yeah that's i mean that's always devastating that first year yeah and but what hurt the most for me is when i realized that like i had i had gone i had reached this level empathetic burnout where it was at the point where i had gotten used to it Mm. And that was like, oh, fuck. <laughs> yeah. And when when you reach that, you're like, you need to take a step back from it. Mm. I feel like. And I think that's that's also one reason why I feel like a lot of. But I, but I sure. guess. Uh, did you get did you get did you get used to it or did you sense that some part of you was numb to it? Because I guess I'm just yeah. I feel like that distinction to me is important because I'm like getting used to it to me is it to me seems like a reality that so many people have to face and it's like in that situation in that context that was something you had to face but to me being numb to it means that i don't know it didn't have the effect on you over time that you feel like it should have yeah i think it was like there was a point where i was used to it but then got to a point where i was getting numb to it Mm. and i was like this is this is bad right and i think a lot of it also had to do with a lot of my work wasn't really kind of centered on a lot of these people or it, I just didn't see a lot of the impact of my work when I was there. Right. And I felt maybe uninspired and motiv- unmotivated to create like more work around that. And I was, you know, it was also, it was also more so because I was incredibly broke <laughs> mm. for a good, like half of my time living there. Yeah. Where, you know, there were times where I'm like, okay, am I going to be able to pay next month's next? Am I going to be able to pay next month's rent? But I, I guess also, you don't. Yeah. But maybe we should just be hella transparent. But like, yeah. what is broke living there in the Philippines mean? Because I feel like people uh-huh. here might listen to it and be like, they're like, oh, I have $5 in my bank account. I don't know. I'm, I'm just like, I, I really want you to be real about that. Because I feel like that's something people are like, oh, you're broke. For me, it was like I was living 8,000 miles away and there was a point where I'm like, oh, I have like $50 to my name. Mm-hmm. And like my rent is like 250 And then like my landlord's like, hey, you didn't pay last month's rent. But I was like, yeah, I have some something coming in, but it hasn't come like out yet. Like they haven't sent me the check, but I swear I'll be able to pay it back. They're like, okay, we want you out like next month. And, and I'm like, like ah. I, how am I starting my life with a negative? Right. And like I had I had some credit card debt when I was out there and you're like, what do I do with this? Like, I don't know. I don't know. And like in those moments of like survival, like you're just like, I can really only think about myself, which is really unfortunate because I don't want to be I didn't want to be in that situation. Yeah. In this scenario. And certainly there was a lot of stresses with that. But 
certainly there was also a lot of lessons I learned, right? I mean, like being broke and poor makes you realize, okay, I don't want to be in that again. Mm -hmm. How can I like maintain this like resiliency? How can I maintain this resiliency and like continue to flourish economically while still maintaining my values and morals? Yeah. Yeah. And it's hard there and you see it in the people. You're like, how can I care about other people if I can, if I'm barely getting by? Yeah. Honestly, I, I never thought of it in this way, but what you just said reminds me of um, <clears throat> of just whenever me or my mom goes to Jamaica and she says, I don't know, she says it all the time. And she said it to me recently. She was like, when you're so desperate, it, it changes you. Like it changes people. Like it makes them only look out for themselves. They only see what they can get from people. And I'm sure there's like a spectrum of that, but um, I never really connected that until now. you so much for listening to part one of this month's episode stay tuned anywhere that you listen to podcasts to listen to part two to hear eli hiller interview me once again you can support this podcast by sharing it on social media following subscribing and most importantly leaving a quick review all of these things make it easier for other people to find the creative hour podcast and it's an easy way to support a black podcaster music in this episode is by sam holman smith to learn more about the Creative Hour podcast, check out thecreativehourpodcast.com. Thank you. <laughs>